Open our Bibles to Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, and we'll read from verse 1 to verse 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Sincria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also, greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epenetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachius, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, and also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've come to a place that seemed far away a few years ago, and that's the 16th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Uh, We finished chapter 15 on the note of God's fearful and wonderful providence in ordering the events of our lives. Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The mind of man plans his way. And Paul planned his way as best he could uh, to come to Rome, but we've seen... Uh, how God directed His steps to get to Rome. Again, in Jeremiah 10.23, He says, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. And Paul's way was not in himself. It wasn't in him to direct his steps, but God did. We are in... Uh, utter dependence upon the sovereign direction of God over our lives. One little chance event, so-called chance event, can change absolutely everything. The whole rest of your life. You can have all of your career planned out and everything ahead of you in one little 
bolt that breaks or one little fly that distracts you and everything's changed utterly in a moment. But for the Christian, as Spurgeon once said, for the Christian, providence is the handmaiden of grace. You think of that woman at the well. She just happened to come out right when the the only one who could give her the water of life was sitting beside the well. And her eternity hinged on that little chance event. Well, it wasn't chance. was The Lord had arranged that time for her. And it's not chance that somebody gave you a Bible when they did or talked to you about the Lord. Part of His sovereign providence over your life. So the mystery and wonder of providence. That was the last thing we looked at in chapter 15. And then we saw too that the unfolding of providence is directly tied in with the earnest prayers of God's people. God accomplishes His sovereign purposes not contrary to or in spite of the prayers of His people, but through the prayers of His people. And we saw how Paul appealed to these Romans to earnestly pray for him, that he might be delivered when he went to Jerusalem, that his life might be spared. And God worked out His providence in Paul's life through the prayers of people like the Roman Christians. O thou who dost hear prayer, to thee all men come. God hears prayer. And we have every reason to believe that it was the earnest prayers of the Roman Christians that were in large measure responsible for the fact that Paul was spared and that his life was spared and that he was able to make it safely to Rome some three years after this letter was written. So we come to chapter 16, and as I said last week, I know you've all been looking forward to studying these names in the first 16 verses. And I've been looking forward to trying to figure out how to give a sermon on these names. That's not really the case, is it, though? Because we know that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. So we know there's going to be profit here. And that's what we find when we come to this section. Um, Concerning um, these names, one commentator put it like this. The list of names in this section does not make very interesting reading for most students of Roman. But for those few who are especially interested in the socioeconomic composition of the early church, it is a gold mine. For there was a tendency in the ancient world to give certain names to certain kinds of people. For example, wealthy people high on the social ladder would give their children certain names. Slaves or former slaves would use or be made to use other names. That's the reality of what was going on. So you can learn a lot by reading these names. And there have been men who have done special studies and spent a large amount of time studying these names, not to mention the people associated with the names. And these names tell us a lot about the makeup of the Church of Rome. But aside from that, there are other things that we learn from this section as well. So I want us to consider today five major truths that we see illustrated 
uh, in this section that we've just read. And the first one is this. The Bible was given to the common man. How do we see that? Well, the majority of these names, first of all, were Gentile names. Most of the people at the church at Rome uh, had never seen a Bible or heard the simplest Bible truths before the time that they were converted. They had never memorized any Scripture. They had never been taught any Bible stories, and they never had heard of the Ten Commandments. And yet they became pillars in the church, some of them outstanding evangelists and servants of Christ, as we read back in chapter 15, full of all goodness, able to admonish one another, thoroughly equipped in the Christian life. Not only were the majority of the Roman Christians Gentiles, the majority of them were either slaves or former slaves. And yet Paul is not afraid in the least to write the deepest theology that he's ever written to these slaves. Why? Because he knew that the Bible was given to the common man. He knew that the truths of God are taught by the Spirit of God to those who will diligently cry out to God and study the Word of God and ask Him for wisdom. These things are not given to human intellect or superior IQs. When we, uh, when Mona and I took a trip to England years ago, we visited Little Sodbury Manor, which was where William Tyndale was the tutor of Sir John Walsh's children. <clears throat> Sir John Walsh um, owned a manor place there, fabulous place, old. Henry VIII visited there with Anne Boleyn, who seemingly had been converted through one of Tyndale's Bibles, actually. But uh, anyway, when Tyndale was there as a tutor, uh, there was a discussion in the great hall of that um, manor. And one of the learned uh, Catholic scholars said, better to be without God's laws than to be without the Pope's laws. And William Tyndale said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spares my life, I'll make it so that the boy who drives the plow will know more Scripture than you do. And those were kind of harsh words, <clears throat> but you have to realize that only two or three years before that, a woman and six men, three of them were shoemakers, these are common men, had been burnt at the stake because they taught their children the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed in English. Isn't that amazing? Burn them at the stake because they teach the Lord's Prayer in English. That's why Tyndale would have a response like that. And he wanted to translate the Bible into the language of the common man, which in this case was English. And you know that eventually he did and much of the Bible that we've received down through the years came through Tyndale. He was eventually strangled and burned at the stake himself 
but uh, he knew um, that the Bible was given to the common man, to the boy that drives the plow. Why were the Catholics so opposed to the translation of the Bible into English? Well, supposedly because the common man could never hope to understand all this stuff. That's the idea. I mean, you've got to keep this. This is for the learned doctors. The fact is, the common man could understand it all too well, and he could understand that the the things that were being taught by the church were false. And it didn't take long when the Bible began to go into various places like Oxford and what have you that people started being converted, priests started being converted. The Bible was given to the common man. Uh, The Greek, some of you know that the Greek of the New Testament is a little bit different than classical Greek. It's called Koine Greek. And uh, for a time, uh, people didn't really understand why it was different from classical Greek. And somebody put forth the theory that it was a heavenly language that was given specifically for the Bible to be written in. And then they discovered that it was the common Greek that was used every day in that time. And that's really pretty appropriate, isn't it? The heavenly language was the language of the common man. That's what it was. I want to make it clear that there's no virtue in, in being ignorant. William Tyndale himself was a master of at least seven languages. And we should thank God for people who become masters of Greek and Hebrew. But the fact is that time and time again, over the years, I've seen the top guys, the the best of the best in Hebrew and Greek, disagree with one another about the meaning of a verse. So now what are you left with? Well, you're left with the guy. It's far more is dependent upon your attitude, an attitude of faith, an attitude of humility, holiness, and experience of the power of God than is dependent upon the knowledge of Hebrew and Greek. Because God gave the Bible to the common man. John Bunyan made the comment that if great intellect were a requirement for understanding the Bible, God would not have said, not many wise, not many noble. It would have been the other way around. And the Lord Jesus would not have said, I thank Thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to babes. It would have been the other way around. Think if He had said that. I thank You that You have hidden these things from babes and revealed them to the wise and intelligent. But He didn't. Um, Some of you... Remember years ago when Primperdon came here from Nepal? Uh, here's a man that was converted in India as a mercenary soldier, felt the call to go back into his own country and share the gospel. Fearful to do that because he knew there was a mandatory six-year prison sentence for causing anybody to change their religion. And he went in and began to witness for Christ, saw no fruit, <clears throat> and uh, he said the Scripture was impressed upon him, these signs shall follow those that believe. 
and he began to pray that God would do something. He was visiting a Hindu family that had been friendly to him. And he said, why does your mother never come downstairs? And they said, well, for I've forgotten, I think it was six years or something like that. She's been paralyzed. She can't walk. And he said, why don't you pray to Jesus to heal her? And they said, why don't you pray to Jesus? And he said, I went up the steps with my heart pounding and fell on my face. And he said, God, say to me in my heart, you ask and I will do it. And he healed that, God healed that woman. She went down the steps rejoicing and he fell on his face thanking God. Now, if he had been to seminary, he would have known, in most seminaries, he would have known God never does anything like that anymore. And he would have been so full of unbelief that it would, God wouldn't have done anything. But he was simple enough that he just believed what the Bible said. And many times, beloved, listen, what I'm saying to you, God wrote this. Romans. He wrote Romans to slaves. Many people that hadn't had an education that didn't even know how to read. What I'm saying is, this is your book. This is my book. And we have every reason to read the Bible and study the Bible and cry out to God to give us understanding. He promised He would. He said, if you'll do that, if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for us for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. You will. Wonderful. What else do we learn? You know, Vance Abner said the happiest man in the world is a brand new Christian before he meets too many Bible scholars. And that's what we have to, <laughs> we have to bear in mind on this. So what else do we learn from <clears throat> this section? We learn that there are no, quote, little or, quote, unimportant people with God. We tend to think of great men like the Apostle Paul and, and Peter and John and so on, uh, sort of like Lone Ranger Christians. And you know, they kind of stand out, but they weren't. And even the Apostle Paul needed help. He said that in verse 2, that how Phoebe helped him. And notice how he talks about fellow workers. Verse 3, Priscilla and Aquila, fellow workers. Verse 9, Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Verse 7, fellow prisoners, Andronicus and Junius. And so the fact is, Paul would never have been able to accomplish anything without the help and prayer and steadfast faithfulness of little people, so-called, that we've never heard of. Think of someone like Persis. This is a woman, verse 12. Persis, the beloved. It means Persian woman. So she was from modern day Iran. It says that she worked hard in the Lord. We would have never heard of her. We wouldn't have a clue that she even lived except for this greeting here. Urbanus, verse 9, our fellow worker in Christ. Only eternity will tell 
the stories of these so-called little people. And Paul, and whoever, maybe Paul was the greatest apostle, I don't know, but Paul would not have been able to accomplish anything without these people. And we need to realize, beloved, that that, uh, it matters. Don't let the devil tell you it doesn't matter whether you read your Bible or not. It doesn't matter whether you pray or not. It doesn't matter whether you come to church or not or come to prayer meeting or not. It matters. It matters. It matters whether you remain faithful to the Lord. It matters a great deal. What else should we learn? From this section, we learn that Paul had a deep and special appreciation for women and their ministries. Look at this down through here. Paul mentions nine women, and five of them are commended for their labor in the Lord. Nine women, he mentions, and five commended particularly for their labor. Verses 1 and 2, Phoebe. And Dick could tell you that there has been a lot written about Phoebe, uh, the question of whether this word servant should be translated deaconess and so on. But look at the obvious regard that Paul has for this woman. You can just hear his respect coming through. Receive her in the Lord the way you ought to in a manner worthy of the saints. Help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. She herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. She had been a helper of Paul. And then uh, verses 3 and 4, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, I may speak on them uh, next message. I don't know for sure, but mentioned six times in the Bible. Four times Priscilla's mentioned first. In this couple. I may talk about that next time. But notice Priscilla is a fellow worker with Paul. And doesn't he say that? Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers. She's a fellow worker with Paul. That's quite an honor right there. Priscilla risked her life. Priscilla deserves the thanks not only of Paul, but of all the churches. And then Mary in verse 6, evidently uh, Paul had heard of her hard work there in Rome all the way from Corinth or somewhere else. As, um, he says, she's worked hard for you. And then verse 7, you have Andronicus and Junius or Junia feminine, and we don't know. There's not, it's not a question of manuscript. We just don't know how it's accented. If you accent it differently, it's a woman. And um, it's interesting. Um, men have made studies on this down through the history of the church. Up until the 13th century, it was uniformly believed that this was Junia, a woman. And then uh, from the... 13th century uh, to the middle of the 20th century, generally it was understood that this was a man. It doesn't have anything to do with the word itself. It just has to do with your mindset. And then uh, recently, again, uh, Bible scholars have taken up the idea that this was a woman. We don't know for sure, but 
If it was, she was, I mean, it makes more sense, Andronicus and Junia, husband and wife. But if, if so, she was a fellow prisoner uh, with Paul and with her husband and well-known or esteemed among the apostles. Verse 12, he mentions two more women, Tryphena and Tryphosa. They may have been either sisters or twins. There's some evidence to think that they were twins. Tryphena, you know, you have this little girl, name her Tryphena. Well, the next one, and especially if they were twins, was obvious. <laughs> Tryphena and Tryphosa, dainty and delicate. That's what it means. <laughs> dainty and delicate. And notice what he says. They've, they've worked, they've labored, they've worked. They're dainty and delicate. Have not stayed around doing nothing. They've worked for the Lord. They've worked in the Lord. And then um, um, Persis uh, has worked hard in the Lord. And verse 13, Rufus's mother, uh, he says, uh, his mother and mine. He's, one translation says she's been a mother to me as well. So I don't know what uh, somebody in the church that mothered um, at some point earlier, somewhere, who knows where they were living at the time and why Paul was passing through, but Rufus's mother had been a mother to Paul. Think of that. And then verse 15, he makes mention of the sister of Nereus. So this whole section is one more example of what Dick taught back when he spoke on this subject from 1 Timothy. And that is that, quote, the Bible teaches the dignity of womanhood, the equality before God of men and women, and the unity. So dignity, equality, and unity of all Christian believers, male and female, as fellow members of God's family and Christ's body. There's no sense at all down through these verses that Paul viewed women as second-class Christians or as second-class ministers. Their ministry was different in different ways, but they were not second class. In fact, he holds them and their ministry as of vital importance and much appreciated. What else do we learn from this section? This is number four. There appear to have been at least three and perhaps five separate house churches in the Roman church. Verse five um, we have um, Priscilla and Aquila. It says, greet the church that is in their house. And we know from other passages that Priscilla and Aquila had churches in their house and other places. They moved around quite a lot. And then verse 14, you have Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Why does, what, what's this group? There's a group there. And verse 15, there's another group. Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. And then possibly verses 10, Apelles, the approved in Christ, greet those who are of the household, of Aristobulus, that usually when it talks about households, it's talking about an extended group that would be uh, meeting 
and part of somebody's um, extended home. Same way uh, in um, verse 11, the household of Narcissus are in the Lord. And so <clears throat> there's at least three here uh, distinct and maybe five. Why would there be house churches? And we just tend to read right over this. Um, in the early church, why would there be house churches? Well, the fact is that the the early Christians did not have large public buildings to meet in. Even the largest house of the most wealthy Christian would probably not hold more than maybe 70 or 80 people. That would be a big house. And so they were forced to meet in house churches. And I think there are two extremes here. On the one hand, we can say that house churches are the only scriptural way to do church and that large churches are unscriptural. And there's a whole movement, kind of a spectrum there. Some are very extreme on it. Some are moderate. But there's a whole movement along that line. And in some of the groups, uh, anyone who does not hold to that does not speak at one of their conferences. They never have anybody speaking at their conferences except people that are totally committed to house churches. Only house churches. And um, the fact is that God didn't command house churches. Okay, He didn't command that. It just worked out that way at the time. And we've got to be careful about making what was historical into something normative. So you read an account, this is what they did. Oh, well, that's what we have to do. Or it's unscriptural, it's wrong. <clears throat> so that's the one side. We've got to be careful about that. On the other hand, we should never get the idea that bigger is better. And uh, there is an intimacy of fellowship in, in a small group that's often not possible in a larger group. I know of numerous, not just one or two, I begin thinking about it, I know of numerous churches that began as house churches. This one did. This church right here did. Eventually they outgrew the situation, got too big to meet in a home. And we we have buildings readily available in most cases. But I think that in every house church that I know of, the one down in Columbia, they started meeting in the home and outgrew it. I think that every one of them would testify that some of the very best times took place when they were a small group meeting in a home. So you can't say that bigger is better. Um, and that's why I would encourage you. You know, it's a, there's an opportunity in a small group for more intimacy, more sharing, more questions a lot of times, and that's why I would encourage you as much as you're able um, after putting the prayer meeting priority, but after that to attend one of these Tuesday night or Thursday night smaller groups. Uh, And maybe God will permit that over time. I mean, if everybody attended one, then it wouldn't be a small group anymore. But... We're trusting that there will be, you know, opportunity as we go on. We've got a lot of different things that we can do on those nights. And uh, that God will have different ones at different times to be able to come to that. So, anyway, 
I do believe that every church needs both the larger and the smaller fellowships. Both are a blessing. And we see that, think of this. He writes the letter to the Romans, that Roman church, and he addresses all these different believers and the church that meets in their house. So somehow this letter got to the, everybody, and everybody was unified, but they were still having to meet in houses. I don't know whether they mixed around and or, or what, but there was one church there that he's writing to. He wasn't writing to a bunch of churches. He's writing to one church, and yet they're meeting in homes. That's what we see here. Something to think about. And then uh, the last thing, the fifth thing that we learn from this, is that Christians are exhorted to have and show affection for one another. You think of it, first of all, Paul's example here. Greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. Just took time to go down through there, all these different people, greeting them. And then we're specifically exhorted in verse 16 to greet one another. He said it just plain out. Greet one another. Greet one another. In other words, don't put your head down and look the other direction. Greet one another. Just show some... It's Christian. It's Christian to greet one another. And I know I've failed in this a lot of times just to... be preoccupied with something else and we just fail to greet one another. But not only are we to greet one another, but we're to greet one one another with a show of affection. Maybe not every time, but there's to be a show of affection. And I realize, greet one another with a holy kiss. And I realize that there are cultural changes and so on. Um, But at least it means something. Right? I remember when I first became a Christian, I had grown up in church. I had never seen, I'd never seen any man hug another man. Never had seen that in my life. You know why? Because most of the people in the church that I grew up in were lost. I mean, it was a dead church. There was no gospel there at all. And you don't do that. I mean, you don't hug some other man unless Something's in your heart of feeling love for them. You know? I saw that at the wedding yesterday. I had people that I hadn't seen for a while came up and hugged me with tears. That means, that means a lot. That means a lot. It ought not to be that, we're, that we don't have and show affection for one another. The early church, you remember, they said, behold how they love one another. They were... And that's what Jesus said. By this shall all men know they're my disciples if you have love for one another. The story is told that the Apostle John, when he was old, used to, that used to be his big thing. He'd say, little children love one another. Little children love one another. Well, this is important enough that Paul felt that he needed to include it in his exhortation. And God specifically saw fit to include it in the New Testament so that we could learn from it. So may God help us in this. Well, next time we may, like I said, I'm not sure yet, we may spend time on 
on Priscilla and Aquila specifically. There's a lot to learn from their lives. And it would give us a little more feel for the geography of all these things that we tend to just read over. But if not, if we don't do that, we'll, we'll plan on going on um, to the last half of this chapter. Got about a half a page left. Let's see what the Lord has for us in that section. 